stuck. It's raining in the park. You know, it's been a while. Time. I know the uh, Swing Thoughts community is wondering where the hell we've been. I was thinking about this this morning on the uh, Humble and Fred program, which I continue to grind out every day. I don't recall the last time you and I broke uh, metaphorical bread together. Mm, it was, I think, three weeks ago or so. Yeah, three weeks. Before you went on your... Uh, Southern Sojourn. That's right. To Mexico. Bienvenidos, mi amigos, mi hermanos, mi niños, mi niñas, mi chicas, mi chicos, mi gringos, mi carbons. No, what is it? I always get that last one wrong. Uh, welcome to another edition of Swing Thoughts. Um, if are we, I can't remember. Do we stream this on uh, some kind of channel? I put it, uh, most of the time I put it on my YouTube channel. <laughs> what, did, what does that mean? It means when I'm feeling <clears throat> that, okay, I, I'm going to have some time and I'm not annoyed by okay. having to go through the rigmarole mm. of uploading it to my YouTube channel and waiting <laughs> for it and yeah. checks happening and copying this and that. I'm very low tolerance for things that get in the way of doing things like work you know like coaching someone or writing something it's like i find those little administrative tasks like just they're just annoying well here's the thing if you didn't know how old tim and i were now you do because he just used the word the phrase rigmarole <laughs> are we are we dilly dally that's right going? my dad used to say that don't dilly dally all right uh, all right, welcome to uh, Swing Thoughts, brought to you by, as always, uh, TaylorMade Golf. And um, I was mentioning to Coach Tim here, I'm Humble Howard, by the way, golf spiritual leader, you know that. If you've evolved with us at all, you know that I've reached a higher plane. But I was just sharing with Coach Sorry Tim. Sorry for snickering. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you don't, you don't uh, snicker at uh, the GSL. But um, I was just sharing with Coach Tim. I'm on my way to our friend Sean Casey's indoor range today. Um, it'll become evident when I tell you the full story of my Mexican adventure. But um, usually when TaylorMade offers us our winter fitting around mid-December, at least it was last year. And I always feel like I'm a few months removed from golf shape. Like, you know, your calluses have started to heal. Your hands feel like a normal person. You know, your, your achy back feels sort of normal. Like I, I, I always feel like when I'm doing that fitting, I'm not swinging at yeah. sort of full speed. And so uh, I had to come back from Mexico early, which we'll uh, discuss. But I'm going to go a couple times at least before I do the fitting because I just want to stay kind of in some remote golf shape. Uh, I know you teach indoors. You work with some of your guys indoors over the winter. Do you use Casey's Place, you and Nate? No, no. I Last winter, I worked out of a place in the south end of Guelph. Right, that's right. Uh, but that place uh, closed down because the partner's... As happens with partnerships, uh, the partnership went kablooey. And oh, I'm sorry, is that from the Rigmarole Handbook? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, they was had it, a dust what, up. Was there a kerfuffle? Yeah, it, it, but it didn't become a Donnybrook. Or about was there some ballyhoo? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, but yeah. You, so, so I'm going to be coaching at a, this the, the, at a new place. Yes. In the north end of golf, but it's not going to open probably till February 1st. So just to bring it back, uh, I have not swung a golf club since the last time I played, which I think was the third last weekend of October. And okay. I'm okay with it. Yeah. Someone asked me the other day, do you miss it? I went, no, not at all. Really? That, but that's just me. Well, that's uh, that would be a, that's like a foreign language to me. I haven't played since Saturday, and I'm like, God, I got to go hit some balls. Um, I, I saw your buddy Nate actually before I went to uh, where I was, which is a, a, a city about four hours north of uh, Mexico City. A, uh, it's a world UNESCO town, which is a, a designation that UNESCO gives 
magical places on the earth. And uh, it's oh. a place called San Miguel de Allende. Anyway, I went to Casey's place and I ran into Nate. I think. Um, he was hanging around there doing something. That's, uh, by the way, Nate. What is Nate's last name? Robinson. Yeah, he's a good man, Nate. And he works with uh, Coach Tim. So, But you still do coaching in the wintertime if you want to avail yourself of uh, Tim's uh, many talents and uh, acumen. O'ConnorGolf.ca is where you find him. Is acumen another word that old people use? No, no, no. This is a different category than kerfuffle and uh, rigmarole. <laughs> Aren't you know? I, sometimes I use words, and you, 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 you seem to get uh, thrown by them. Aren't you a writer? How is so it that I have well, a? Di- it works both ways, pal. You just I, yeah, but I, I said mean, acumen, and yeah, rigmarole is like from the nineteen fifties. Acumen is just a word from a crossword puzzle. God it's damn it! It's not a word you drop into every. You, I do, but that's why I'm you know golf spiritual leader. I throw that shit around. I'm not afraid of words. I'm not afraid of what people think of me if I use a big word. Hey, I've written books and stuff. I, I know like you have. And stuff. <laughs> no, I know. I know you have. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. Listen, I got a little excited there because my uh, I'm on some medication. Um, I played golf uh, at a really... I played one round at a pretty easy golf course, a place called Ventanas. And then I played six or seven rounds at one of the toughest courses I've ever played. Mm-hmm. And for a variety of reasons, you know, you, you know, from being around golf as long as I have that a lot of times when they talk about the slope or the course rating of a course, I think a lot of people wonder where a lot of that comes from. But on really difficult golf courses, it comes from a couple of different areas, one of which is difficulty of driving, but it's heavily weighted to how difficult the greens are to play. Oh, yeah. Good example of that is the National. The National is not an overly difficult driving course. It's not easy, but it's not where the challenge comes from. The challenge comes from if you miss the fairway, you can't hold the greens. And you can't, if, you, if you can't get on the green, you can't get up and down, and et cetera, et cetera. Well, this course in Mexico I played was called Malanquin. It's where my friend who is, uh, I was visiting a friend and his lady who lived there. And I was actually doing the show there for a couple weeks, too. The slope, humble and Freddie show, the humble and Freddie show, and the um, difficulty on this golf course was really narrow driving and extremely difficult greens. And I, I couldn't believe the everyday speed they wow. allowed these greens to get. It was crazy, Tim. Like tons of slope, you mean? Not just slope. Although every green, we had it was like you know how sometimes you can see a false front. Oh, yeah. But all, I'd say 14 of the 18 greens had a subtle false front. And and I'm going to get into that after, but they were all sloped from back to front, but not so much that you could really, that it was obvious, but it was obvious once your ball spun off the green. Yeah. You know, if you had 110 yards to the green and you hit it 110, you were going to be chipping. Where it doesn't matter where the flag was. So you had to calculate that if it's 110, I've got to hit this around 120 or 120 something to keep it on the green. And I, I, I found it infinitely challenging, not maddening. Although, you know, an earlier version of GSL, I could have gotten a bit frustrated, but I just, I looked at it like, wow, no wonder they like playing, like my friend's been living there for 10 years and he plays with a group of men between 68 and 88 and the 88 year old and I played together three times and I think he shot his age a couple of those three times like he was wow. he was really good and he was amazing he was way better than me from 100 yards in like he knew all the little tricks totally and he used to be probably a six or seven in his day but I know one day for sure he shot 86 you know another day cool. he was probably 88 or 90 that is fantastic to be of that vintage and playing golf and hanging out. That's so amazing. I just mm. love that. How old, me, I, I, I was going to think of your dad and my dad. My dad, my dad and I played golf six weeks before he uh, died. And that was two months prior to his 84th birthday. Mm. How about your pop? Well, my dad, not quite the same because my dad had kidney disease that so weakened him in his last couple of years. So he probably played. So my dad passed away at age 85. So 
I'm thinking in his 83rd year. Mm-hmm. 80, yeah, that was probably when he was last playing. Uh, I'm. And it's interesting you brought that up about just how wonderful it is. That's one of the takeaways for me is, you know, <laughs> one day, the last day I played like four days ago was a Saturday, and I, I had to leave on Sunday, and I, I played, and my friend who was 78 was tired. He didn't want to play that day. So I went out, and you have to take caddies. But I'll, I'll explain why. Before I had my incident, I was walking all the time. Um, but a lot of the older guys take a caddy and they drive the carts. The caddies walk mm-hmm. and they go to their ball. So I got joined up with a guy 85 and a guy 81. This is the best. 85-year-old. And they're all playing the front tees. And I was playing that day the second back tees, which are 6,500 yards. I did play the course twice from 7,250 yards. Ooh. But at elevation, it's like playing a 6,500-yard golf course. Cool. Anyway, these guys go to their tees. I go to the second back tees, and they sort of snicker at me like, oh, you're going to play the back tees. And the one guy says, how old are you? And I said, 62. He goes, hey, Ben, we're playing with the kid. (laughs) It made me laugh. And I I guess to an 85-year-old, like he's 23. (laughs) He's 23 years older than me. Exactly. We're playing with a kid, he says to Ben. Anyway. You know, inject a semi-serious note into this. That, to me, is part of the, the, the wonderful value of golf, particularly for older people. It, you know, I remember I sat across my guy in a Tim Hortons in Guelph one time, and we just got chatting about golf. And he says, you know, it gives me a reason to get up every day. And just that... You know, getting into having the social part of it. Sure, you get to whack the hell out of something, being in a, a great environment, but the, largely the social, the camaraderie, all of that, that's, that's so healthy. I mean, and that's part of the problem with aging, particularly if you become widowed, is isolation and loneliness. And, and, and golf just provides such a, an, uh, an energizing stew of stuff for people. No, I'm 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 happy to have that conversation. You're absolutely right. I got a chance to see what you know, men and women, men men in particular, because I hung out with this group of friends of my friend, and they were all, you know, between seventy five. No, I'm sorry, sixty five and eighty eight. And and in one day we were playing. I saw and my friend pointed out somebody, and he said, "Oh, that person there and his wife play every day." He was ninety four. She was 87 and uh, they were out out there just puttering around. But it was interesting, too, is as so I'm wearing shorts and a shirt. The guys in their 70s are, you know, because it's it's cool in the morning and then it warms up in the day. But so you could see the age group of people just by how much how many clothes they were wearing. So I'm in shorts. I'm in shorts and a shirt. Some of the guys in their late seventies are in shorts and a shirt, but a sweater. The guys in their eighties are wearing pants. (laughs) And the guy who he said was ninety four honestly looked like he was dressed for winter. (laughs) But uh, you know, as he gets older, your circulation diminishes. Well, that's part of the reason you go south, right? You said you're tired of being cold. I'm so tired of being cold. (laughs) <laughs> so tired um yeah i would tell you it was uh, interesting i i used to live in calgary and but i don't recall you know i didn't play that much golf it was in my 20s and um it's been a while since i've played at that elevation it took a bit of an adjustment because you know just to give you an example my sort of stock seven iron I think is, you know, 165-ish in the air, 170 total in that zone. Like if I'm somewhere between 160 and 170, I'm going to hit a 7-iron. I hit a, I think I hit a 7-iron 190 at one point. <laughs> like, because a little bit downwind, a little bit downhill. And, uh, you know, after the first day or so, I kind of, you do the calculation because it's 10%. So if it's 190, you take off, you know, basically you know, 20 yards is 170 and then a little bit downwind. But it's weird because the ball stays in the air for those 190 yards. Wow. There was a 595 yard par five. I hit driver three wood pin high just off the green because when the ball goes up in the air, it's that 10% adjustment 
is is the ball staying in the air for those you know ex I, I don't I, you know Tim I'm not an engineer I don't know why it happens but I can tell you it was pretty good for the ego we don't you know? need to explain it we'll just accept it <laughs> no absolutely <laughs> like there the second hole of this golf course was like 183 downhill so now it's more like 163 and I hit an 8 iron <laughs> it was just it was just bananas <laughs> Like I, I, it was almost, it was, it was making me a bit giddy because the two yeah. days I, the two days I played the bag tees, I, you know, I couldn't play. I, if you and I went out here in Canada and we played 7,200 yards, we'd both be hitting a lot of hybrids into par fours, <laughs> three woods, three woods and hybrids. Absolutely. <laughs> but there, you know, one of the par fours was 460 and I hit a really nice drive and I had like. A six iron into the green. Like it was, it was. Like it gave me a, a sense of. Uh, you could tell from my voice. Like I still remember. It was such. It was so fun because yeah. it was like rolling back the clock. Which is another reason those old guys like playing there. Oh, totally. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, now I totally get that. Yeah. So it was good. So is it in? Is it in a mountain region? It is. It's so uh, surrounded ball, by. You see it. Oh yeah. Of, that's that's one of the wonderful things about mountain golf. I remember yeah. playing uh, Big Sky in BC and hitting this shot, and it's like the ball just sort of freezes against the mountain. It's such a cool thing about mountain golf. Well, you know, um, so just to be uh, clear, it's not like the Rocky Mountains mountains. It's like the it's like the the environment around Palm Springs. So it's those kind yep. of smaller mountainy desert. Everything is desert. Oh yeah, um, yeah. but it's sixty two hundred feet elevation. Hmm. That's cool. Well, you know what we were talking about bef- before we officially got started here today was that's the diametric opposite of what happens when you go to Myrtle Beach. <laughs> yeah, you, because you're below sea level, that you have to add clubs and just feel, that takes an adjustment. Uh, when you first, when I first used to get I've been to Myrtle for a while but I mean I used to go there a lot is having to in essence do the math to say oh this you know if I normally hit a you know 7 iron 165 well I, I gotta be hitting my 6 iron mm-hmm. you know it's been a while since I've been to Myrtle Beach but even here in Toronto like we're 600 feet above sea level so it's still you know it's basically you're not there's no effect like what you're talking about is the opposite of like what I went through, but there's almost no effect in terms of what your ball will do in the GTA. Like how it's do you no. Know, how do you? How does one come to have the data that Toronto is 600 feet above sea level? Who knows stuff like that? Pilots. Ah. Because it's very important to know two different things above ground level. And above sea level, because altimeters are are above our ASL. An altimeter is tells you how high you are. So the CN Tower, cool. you know, as you fly by the CN Tower, let's say you're at two thousand feet above sea level, but you're only fourteen hundred feet above ground level. Now, my buddy Dave, I could I could be getting that mixed up, but that's why you need to know it because. You know, when you go into an airport, you need to know its elevation because you need to be able to know if you're, you know, what your height above sea level is because that's what your instruments are calibrated to. That's really cool stuff. Thank you for enlightening <laughs> me. Well, but, you know, you're the GSL. So you're all about enlightenment. Well, you know, it's like uh, the 85-year-old that I played with on Saturday was a former helicopter pilot who had done two tours of Vietnam in the jungle and then flew helicopters in Saudi Arabia commercially. And he told me that halfway through the first hole and his friend, the 81-year-old, I said, hey, Ben, how do you know, the old thing about how do you know you have a pilot at your party? Oh, don't worry, he'll tell you. (laughs) And this guy, so I had, I played nine holes with those guys and uh, just talked to this gentleman about flying for the entire time. It was fascinating. Yeah. Hey, I just want to ask you, um, I'm sure this I'm always interested I read a remember we had Ellen Langer on our show yes of course years and years ago and she wrote uh, an amazing book on mindfulness m- more about being conscious versus 
the mindfulness people associate with meditation, et cetera. But one of the things that she said is that in our culture, we have perceptions of what it's like to be old. And the words that come up that people have when you ask like a younger person, that could be someone even in their, you know, teenage years, 20, 30, you think, what does old mean to you? And they'll say words like, uh, uh, feeble, uh, forgetful, uh, slow, you know, on, on and on. Um, but, you know, of course, now that you and I are gaining <laughs> on, on, on that, on that vintage, um, it's really interesting. I, 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 that, well, let me just go to the question I'm very slowly getting to. No, take your time, man. I got all day. How did, the, you know, you know, how does that, you know, when I talked about that, that sense of older people in their 80s, why not being, say, feeble and slow and forgetful, how did that actually land with your experience with these folks? It's funny you bring that up because we were talking to our, uh, we have a guy that contributes to our show and he's a sponsor and a supporter and my friend. He calls himself the retirement Sherpa. And what he does is he helps people Sherpa their way through retirement and not just financially, but all sorts of aspects. And and we were talking about just this subject. Like, you know, when, when you're like now when I'm talking to a 40 year old, I call them kid. Right. We've done that a little bit. Yeah. And I said, you know, when you're 30 and 40, you're not sure how much money you should put away, because really, it's always a question of how long are you going to live and how long will your money last? Well, I saw guys living and men and women, excuse me, living very vital, healthy lives, you know, well into their late 70s, mid 80s, high 80s, that couple in their 90s playing golf every other day. The point is, you know, you should make sure you put some money away because you don't want to outlive your money. Oh, yeah. You know, the life expectancy of a male in Canada I think is 82 point something, 83 for a female. It's closer to 85. Well, my experience is, you know, these people are out for dinner. The 88 year old guy that I played golf with three times in the two weeks I was there. I saw him on Saturday because he didn't play Saturday because he goes to the gym. Like he, he was coming, he's coming out of the gym. He's wearing like gym clothes. The first time I've seen him outside of his golf clothes. And he's, you know, a smart man and very interested in the world. Told him about our podcast. I uh, The first day I was there, my friend Bill, who I used to work with in radio, told everybody at the table about the podcast. You know, most of these guys, podcast, modcast. But this one guy, the 88-year-old, started listening to it, the Humble and Fred show. And then one of the last days I was there, we were talking some golf strategy. And they were asking me. You know, once they sort of figured out that I could golf, a couple guys, including him, were asking me about why did I hit a certain club on a certain hole? And then we started talking about strategy. I told him about you and I. Next thing I know, he's now listening to Swing Thoughts. So not only is he physically engaged, but he's still mentally engaged in the world. Well, that's the whole thing. It's bringing it all together is that engagement physically, mentally, spiritually, all of that, all of that stuff. And like, I was reading something the other day, it was by Margaret Atwood. And it was like, if you, have you uh, familiar with that platform called Substack? I am familiar, but I'm not a hundred percent sure what it is. Well, it's like kind of like you get, it's, it's kind of has a newsletter format, but you know, all these writers of all different kinds. And you basically, you subscribe to these and you get emailed their stuff. And so, I was reading some stuff about Margaret Atwood, and I think she's something like 88 now. But the point is, is that is that if you're going to live a long, high, you know, vital life, it's so important to stay engaged. And that's what I see. These people that you talked about, the people I see at my gym, the people who, who I meet, the older folks, they're sharp because they just keep going and they stay engaged with the world. Um you know, I know a, a guy who, uh, I don't know how old he is now, but he makes it a point to listen to the music that young pe- the most popular music that young people are listening to. He that helps him stay connected. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to go to that point, but, um, you know, but I know lots of people who seem to, they retire and they just kind of stop doing stuff, drink more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. TV. Definitely drink more. You know, and and um, but I, I'm belaboring the point. But you know, the the people who stay engaged, stay up on things, 
uh, go out physically, mentally, all that stuff. You can live an amazing life and just start to enjoy life in a different way. I hear a lot of people say in their 80s that this is the best time of their life. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. And runs, com- and runs completely counter to the culture's view of everything's young and all that. Well, it's, I mean, a lot of it depends on, you know, the your genetic, you know, luck. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, if you're to avoid cancer. Yeah, if you're going to manage to avoid a catastrophic illness and you just mm-hmm. have like, you know, like my buddy Bill, you know, he's 78. And uh, the first week I were there, I was there. We worked out together. We did 40. We were like 45 minutes on a treadmill going faster than I wanted to. And, uh, you know, he's beside me. I'm like, I'm not in this old fucker. Get back, you know, but so I'm and then we did some machines like here's the thing. One day I was sitting next to him at lunch and I sort of was making a gesture and I sort of tapped him on the shoulder. And I was like, this guy is stronger than me. You Fred. like he's so strong. He's one of those people that's been strong his whole life, but he's maintained yeah. his strength. And, um, yeah, he's had some issues like everybody, but, uh, that really is, you know, that's that old cliche about if you haven't got your health, but really, if you don't, your retirement, your aged years or whatever, it's a different story, you know? Yeah. So those people I've talked to and I sort of hung around with for a couple of weeks, you know, are the luckier ones because they do all have issues. I'm sure. But they're still able to uh, get around and uh, still play golf, which is, you know, it's funny. I was engaging with somebody on Twitter recently, someone I have no idea who they are from the other side of the world. And they asked me a question because I had commented on a string uh, or a, a thread about the release of the golf club. And, uh, you know, a fascinating guy. He's a doctor from, you know, somewhere in uh, the UK, but a higher handicap. And he was asking me a couple questions about what does release feel like to me, whatever. And not that kind of release, you dirty bastards. Anyway, so, um, but I, I said to him at one point, we were going back and forth. And I said, you know, it's so cool to talk to you because golfers all speak the same language. You know, if you're a golfer, whether you're in Mexico or you're in Medellin or you're in, which is also in Mexico, um, or you're in Ireland. If you're a golfer, we all we can have a conversation because we all think about this game similarly. You know, or in in terms that we think about it a lot. No, oh, absolutely. But would this be, given what we've just been talking about the last couple of minutes, would this be a natural place to talk about what happened to you heart wise in Mexico? Are you talking about? Mi corazón. I don't know. I just find the whole thing tedious. Um, I think most uh, STDs remember that I had a heart incident in Phoenix, Arizona. It'll be three years ago. February. Literally two weeks before the pandemic, I came home. And... um, there, you know, there's two parts of your heart. There's the sort of engine part, the part, the physical muscle and how it pumps. And then there's the electrical part. Well, I'm very lucky because, you know, some guys our age that have plaque and, you know, they get heart attacks and they have to have stents put in and balloons and all this other stuff. Well, that part of my heart works great. But the electrical part of my heart um, doesn't work so well. So I had another attack. Uh, It's called uh, right ventricle tachycardia uh, or arrhythmia. And um, mine started to act up a little bit. The first few days I was there, I just sort of chalked it up to uh, the elevation. And it's very dry. Mm -hmm. And those kind of things can cause similar uh, symptoms. You know, people that go mountain climbing, they always talk about having to stay at base camp to get acclimatized, whatever. And uh, I was a little bit short of breath, which is weird for me. You know, as you know, I talk a lot, so I'm never really sure. Um, And as I said, whenever I was golfing with these guys, they all ride the carts and the caddies walk, but I was walking. And, you know, I was having great front nines. I really was. On this golf course, I never shot more than a couple over on the front nine. It's the easier of the two nines. It's less in the trees. 
And then the back nine, you know, I sort of chalked it up to the fact that I was getting acclimatized. But I was definitely more tired. Uh, the final nine, I would ride a little bit more. And as the week wore on, like I said, I worked out. I played golf every day. By Wednesday, Thursday, I was starting to feel a little bit lightheaded. And I thought, you know, again, I describe it to people as if you've ever gone on a hot summer day to mark your ball. Yeah. And then stood up. Well, I was starting to have that feeling of lightheadedness all the time. Mm. At the same time, you know, you know, we can all kind of, if you lay there, you know, you're having a nap or going to bed and you can kind of tune into the rhythm of your heart. Well, I was having what I can only describe to people who have never had this as a very fluttering feeling. And what that is, is my heart beats normally for, say, you know, three or four bars as a musician, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And then it would go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And then it stops and goes back to normal. And while it's doing that, it makes you feel like you're going to pass out. Oh the, the problem with that is if you don't get it attended to, um, the results are stroke, heart attack, or our friend death. Not to be too, too dramatic, but you know how golf courses now have those defibrillators scattered about well the reason they do is for what i have which is if you don't get your heart to go back into rhythm it just runs away you know and that's really the end of it so come friday i was feeling like you know i'm not the best and we went out for dinner i said to my friends i said you know i may not i may not 100 percent tonight uh, you know they're i said sort of jokingly if you guys are going to go dancing i'll just you know maybe i'll go home <laughs> ha ha I go to bed that night I wake up the next morning I can tell something's wrong because I'm now having that feeling just constantly and you know for a lot of men especially I say this because you know we're we're so locked up in our feelings and we don't like to admit when something's wrong and so many men I'm sure listening have had heard stories of guys like I'll be fine they go yeah, upstairs oh, yeah. and lay down and they just have a heart attack and die but because I've gone through this before, I knew that something was wrong. And it's funny because I was talking to my my daughter and uh, I was kind of pacing. I woke up, had coffee, made myself breakfast, hoping I would, you know, be able to walk it off. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was pacing around when she called and uh, she could tell right away. She goes, is something wrong? I go, oh, well, you know, I think so. Anyway, I'll try and condense this. So they take me to the hospital, and right away the doctor knows something's wrong. And they hook me up to an IV, and they put all the electrodes on me. They can see my EKG, and uh, I was pretty. Uh, that part was kind of scary too, because you know I, I speak enough Spanish to be polite and order dinner and a beer and ask where the bathroom is and say a few cute things to the caddies, but I don't speak enough Spanish to. Synthesize all the details of what was going wrong with me. So that was a bit disconcerting. But they give me some beta blockers the first day. And by the next morning, I'm fine. I'm like I am now. I feel like, like I can kind of feel it as we're talking, but it's not making me pass out. I felt great, actually. And the doctor, the great doctor there, uh, Dr. Alvarez, his full name is Dr. Jorge Alvarez de la Cadena. <laughs> and, uh, he was a real, he's a great guy and a real character. Now, everyone around me spoke a zero English. I'm not talking about a little bit of English, talking about no English. The attending physician spoke 30% and the cardiologist spoke about 70%. Like he mm -hmm. could speak, in, he he was quite fluent. There, there was the right guy to have the higher percentage, because right. as you would go up the scale, yeah, you know the guy that, and not that the attending physician wasn't a great doctor, but you know to get he the cardiologist was trained at the American uh, Institute of Cardiology, so he'd studied in the states. Really, a sweet guy. He. Um, put me on some beta blockers and the saline or whatever they gave me in the IV calmed me down, made me feel much better. And the next morning he comes in and he discharges me, but he wants me to do a couple of tests in a different city later in the week. Now the first thing he does the next day is put a monitor on me. I thought nothing of it. Wednesday I went to this big city about an hour away, had a few more tests, including you may have, have you ever had a stress test? Like when you're on the treadmill and they hook you up? No, you know what? It's, it's a, I recommend it if, 
if you haven't had it, just for guys our age, just to know, because what it monitors, they get you, they get you on a, you've seen, you've seen it in movies. They put you on, um, all these, uh, they put you on an EKG, but a really big, like they hook you up to a bunch of stuff. And then they get your heart rate to like 136, 140 mm. to see how your blood is pumping. And that one I did great, apparently, and I had an echocardiogram. But it was the monitor of my heart for 24 hours that he was concerned with. And he said, you should go home. Mm. Which really was disappointing because... Totally. My goodness. You, what, you were there how long? And I was there. At, you- at that time, I was there a week and a half. I was supposed to be in Mexico for another three weeks at that point. Yeah. And it was disappointing. And it was also scary because... I went to this city called Carretero, and it's, an, it's a huge city. It's like 2 million people. It's like Vancouver. Modern. I went to this, the Instituto of Heart, the Cortisone Institute. It was great. But every person I spoke to, signing forms, getting hooked up, telling me where to put my clothes, none of those people spoke English. And I, like I said, I, if I'd had my older brother who's been on this show with me, he's very fluent in Spanish. He's worked in Spanish for years he's done projects in latin america for years if i just had him i might have stayed because i there was a lot of things i wanted to ask or could understand that i never really got to so anyway i made plans to come home i alerted both of my doctors here and they didn't seem too concerned i i sent this doctor's report to them and they weren't like get home get on a plane they were more like yeah, that's an odd that you're not having it. You know, they were sort of seemed uh, non nonplussed by the whole thing. And well, I'll I'll say that that's a I'd say that's a damn good thing. Yeah, it made me feel comfortable, but still, it was like a drag. I had to totally. cancel flights. I had to cancel a couple flights. There was a lot of stuff to be done. And on the on the car ride home from the city, I was pretty quiet. The uh, guy that drove me, I, I there's friends. Uh, we you hire a service there. It was pretty cheap. This guy was great. On the way there, we were talking. Jose Luis was his name. And we were, I had my phone. So if I wanted to look up the word in Spanish to yeah. talk to him, we had a great conversation. On the way back, I was on the phone. I was being pretty quiet. At one point, he says, uh, he said, uh, are you okay, senor? Okay, you know, que paso? And I said, yeah, I'm all right. He goes, lo siento. And I was like, oh, it means I'm sorry that you're not feeling well, right? Nice. Really nice guy. So uh, after I arranged everything, you'll love this part. <laughs> I arranged everything when I got home from that visit, knowing I was going to have to cut my trip home or trip short. And also feeling a little bit bummed that who knows what's going to happen now the rest of the winter. I plan to be away for most of the winter doing the show on the road. I uh, get everything arranged. And uh, of course, what do I do? I go to the golf course and hit balls. <laughs> like, you know, I just needed to... Just because I hadn't been able to be at, I hadn't gone to the golf course in four days because I'd gone to the hospital Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I was doing all these tests. So I'm like, gosh, screw it. If I have to go home, I'm going to go work on my short game. So I love uh, it. And I played golf Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I felt okay. You know, not 100%, but pretty good. And um, then I watched the soccer game in the Mexico City airport. And then I but I had which a, one which soccer game the Canada Argentina oh I mean I'm sorry Canada Croatia yeah and the reason I mention this is because I felt pretty good there too and then I had about an hour and a half to kill before my flight and I would tell you I'm alone in Mexico City in this airport my bags have been checked uh, checked and I started having some I guess some anxiety driven symptoms because I started thinking like. I'm going to get on this plane. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what if something happens on the plane? And then I would ping pong between that thought and what if something happens now? My bags are on the plane. Do I go to a hospital in Mexico City? I don't know anybody. I'm sitting there and I was kind of sort of quietly freaking myself out. Exactly. And then I just did some breathing. I know this is going to sound yep. hokey to the listeners, but I did. I sort I of... I just put my head back and I closed my eyes for a few minutes. And I was like, I I thought, okay, if I was there with somebody and and this was happening to them, what would I say to them? That's what I thought. I thought, no, you're going to be fine. The medication's working. You know, you're just freaking yourself out. And I just slowed myself down. And I can tell you this, as soon as they called boarding and I sat down on my seat, 
and I was instantly okay because I knew I'd get home. And as I said to you a minute ago, and I've said this on the show, on the Humble and Fred show, I had just reached my limit of dealing with this in a language I didn't speak. Right. Like I can order, I can order. So hard. It was, I can order you fish tacos and a beer. I can. And if you heard me do it, you'd be impressed. But that's a long way from understanding medical terms. And even simple things like this attendant came in before I had the EKG and she was asking me something and I had no idea what she was saying. Right. And, and, and she spoke no English, but I had to get my phone. She was asking me <laughs> to shave my chest so they could put the, the, uh, the leads on it. But like, dude, I know it seems a silly thing, but it's like, I had no idea what she was saying. So that's my story, Swing Thoughts, folks. And so I have a meet, a meet, I have an appointment on Friday. Uh, the doctor there, Dr. Alvarez de la Cadena, says I'm going to need another uh, operation, possibly a pacemaker, you know. And that's, uh, that's it. I decided very early on in the process that I wrote my friend Kent, uh, our, my buddy, the uh, Scratch Attitude guy, I said, you know what, dude? I'm leaning into the gratitude of all of this. Oh, yeah. I was grateful to be there, meeting all these people, getting to play golf while you guys all had shitty, shitty weather. And, you know, we're all going to have something, you know, and this is what I have. So I will now, I will now take that... questions. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Thank you for that. Soliloquy, <laughs> I will now take questions. Uh, so much wonderful stuff there. I love the gratitude piece. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of my own gratitude work and talking to clients about it. It's just, it's such a wonderful place to be. It's just, a, it, it, there's, a, there's sort of a grace, there's a sense of peace, you know, it's, there's no shooting, there's no worrying, ruminating, I'm just okay here. It's a great thing. But what you also brought up was, you know, if we, you know, people listen to this, show, a lot of them listen to it for the golf stuff. And what you talked about being in that, that gate area and freaking yourself out, that's what happens on the golf course oh, for yeah. our sakes. People just, you know, they make a double bogey and then a bogey, and oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> That's right. It, 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 then you just kind of use the skill of, of awareness. Went, oh, I'm freaking myself out. What could I do? Oh, I could breathe for one. I could look around. And so that is, that's why I love what I love about golf is that all this stuff is applicable in life. And and, you know, whether it be the gratitude, being able to have the skill of what's going on here, the awareness of what you need to do. And so you did that. And uh, and I'm just grateful, continue with that, that it's what's happening. Your doctors aren't all alarmed. And well, I was afraid for you, man, when I first got that email from you. Um, no, I was really afraid. Oh, my buddy Howard. No, I know. On? So that bothered me, but uh, maybe just um, what kind of operation are they talking about? Well, I'm going to just quickly refer to that note I sent you and a a long string of my friends. Um, you know, I I'm, I count you among my dearest friends, and uh, so I I didn't say anything to anyone till I'd kind of been in the hospital for about ten hours, and I thought, okay, I better. I mean, I did call my kids. I'm on a, we have the, we're all, my ex and wife and my two daughters and I are in a family chat. So I said, Hey everybody, guess what? We're, guess where daddy is. Um, but I didn't send any sort of, you know, wide notice until later in the night. And I uh, just want to tell you a quick story. So last time this happened to me, I did the same thing. And the subject line last time was hearts can be fickle was my subject line. And one of my best friends, the dude I just visited in France, didn't look at it for a couple of days because he thought it was some kind of dumb golf thing I was sharing. Or like he didn't, like he seriously, three days later, he's like, are you okay? I just saw this thing now. So this time when I sent out the note, the subject was, I'm in a hospital in Mexico. Then the first line is, that's so Lumby doesn't ignore it this time. I remember that, yes. So, um... <laughs> What we were at with so the the operation that I would have yeah. is called a uh, well they they it's two things they call it uh, heart mapping or it's it's in the world of electrophysiology. So what they do is they go and map your heart with this. They go in through your. It's not open heart surgery. Thank you. Um, 
they go in uh, through your groin, like a lot of these procedures. You know, I, I, I went through it before, and I, I, it was so unintrusive, other than the fact that they have to put you out for three or four hours. Like, you're in an operating room, and there's lots of people around you. It's, it's pretty scary. But the actual operation itself, even though they're going into your heart, isn't as, as invasive as you'd think. Why are you laughing? Are you like? What if you're still going to be surgery? That's day. what you're. I was going to do the joke. <laughs> I was going to do the joke again. It's the greatest joke, big, greatest laugh I've ever gotten. Uh, for you people who weren't with us last time, they they put you down on the table, and one of the th- one of the areas they have to shave is your groin. And uh, there's technical people around you because it's a pretty technical operation they they're they're looking at it on a on an x-ray looking not an x-ray but they're looking at it on a high def monitor because they're watching this tiny um wire go through your groin all the way into your heart but one of the things they have to do is they have to shave your groin area and so i'm laying there i'm a bit dopey because they gave you a little they give you a little valium before they actually put you out so i was all like happy and joyous and this young nurse came over and said you know mr glassman i'm gonna have to shave you uh i said don't worry i'm surgery ready <laughs> you know i've been on vacation with my girlfriend i trimmed up down there anyway uh you know i i i'd cut and rolled the greens you know if you know what i'm saying boys um you know, it wasn't like late in the day growth. It was early morning. It was like tournament. It was like a tournament landscape. Anyway, uh, so they go in. That's what I love. Yeah. Is that you're, I'm 65, you're 62, but we're still five years old. Oh, I know for sure. <laughs> um, so they go in and they map the area. They try and find the area that's misfiring. And they try and get it to misfire. And they actually get it to go on a run. And then they have to shock it out of arrhythmia because they really get it going because they want to know exactly where it is. But I, uh, a couple of listeners got a hold of me and said, you know, they've had one guy's had this operation four times. It's not uncommon to have it a couple of times. And if they can't fix it, I'm sorry, what they do is they go in there, they find it, they, they, they get it to run, they, they shock it back into rhythm, and then they burn the area. They ablate it. It's an ablation. They sort of electrically ablate it so that the the nerve or the cells don't fire or don't misfire. Ultimately, if they can't get it to do that, they have to put a pacemaker in, which I'd be fine with. You know, I was out for dinner last Thursday night. One of the golf guys brought his wife, who's Mexican, didn't speak a word of English, but one of her friends did. And once she found out that I'd had this problem, she called me over and she had me feel where her little pacemaker was. Quite, you know, fairly near her boobies but that's fine <laughs> you know she pulled down her do you want to talk about juvenile she pulls down her top and i'm like is this woman going to show me her boob because i don't think that's appropriate anyway so uh hopefully the doctor on friday will either tell me it's so bad we need to have it done right away which would be my preference or let's try some medication and see if that calms it down which would be fine or it's not so bad, which is my least preferential outcome. And you're just going to have to live this with this until we can get you scheduled for surgery in June or something. So, so that's it. Wow. All right. Well, that sounds pretty scary, but you know what? One thing I just, just quickly, um, the whole beta blockers thing, when we talked about that, a while ago, I was at the Masters in the mid-90s when Mac O'Grady played. And he – so at the at the Masters, there's this big oak tree behind the clubhouse. And that's traditionally where someone comes off the 18th green. And this is, this is practice round time. And uh, you can grab people for interviews. And so Mac O'Grady's – you know, he's a character and everything – and he comes out and sort of the media horde, and I was among them. Uh, he holds court and he says that, you know what? I can do it, you know, and a little something here, you know. A lot of these guys are on beta blockers. And he was saying that they're, they're doing it so that they can bring down their heart rate and they can putt better. So they're not all going apeshit, you know, over these fast, crazy greens <laughs> at Augusta. Right. And oh my God, a shitstorm came from that. I remember, uh, Ray Floyd said, 
Mac O'Grady should be suspended from golf. And I mean, people were really indignant because he was making this accusation in this, you know, lily white sport figuratively oh, yeah. and liter- literally at the time that guys were using, in essence, performance enhancing drugs. Mm-hmm. And the most interesting part of that was what Nick Price said uh, a day or two later. And Nick Price said that he has high blood pressure. And he said that beta blockers, he'd been on them for years, but they actually hurt his golf. And it was interesting how he he went on to explain. He says, when you're playing golf, you want to be fairly calm, but you need time in which you need to engage at a higher level. Mm -hmm. You know, get your energy level might be a seven or an eight. He says, but beta blockers, he could get never get over about a three or a four. So it hurt him in that way. He says, yeah, there might be some advantage that way, but he says, uh, generally it hurt his golf. And then once they found, his doctors found a new medications, so he didn't need the beta blockers. <clears throat> In essence, that's when Nick Price started to, his game elevated and he started winning. I think he won three majors. Yeah. Um, that it was getting off the beta blocker. So I just thought that was that was pretty interesting well, story to revisit. My cardiologist, when I spoke to him, they were so kind. They called me him and the electrophysiologist. You know, they always people always talk about healthcare in Canada, but these two guys when they when hey, I sent talking, I'm going to just close my door here. Yeah, just keep talking. When the when they I sent them a note about what had happened to me, both of them, I was really surprised and, and quite touched that they both called me and had a talk with me. This was before, um, before. Hang on a second, everyone. With my. Uh, Computer is coming undone here. Hold on. So you're gone and I'm back? No, no, fine. <laughs> I was just plugging my, uh, I was just replugging my computer back in. But both of these doctors called me and, um, what was the point of that? I'm going to have to go back and listen. I can't remember I the point of it. I was closing my door. You were closing the door. You were plugging in your computer. I was plugging my computer in. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, the beta blockers. Oh, I know. The doc- one of the doctors reminded me when I came back from Phoenix, I was on these beta blockers for a couple of weeks. And um, I didn't really like how they made me feel. Yeah. Um, one of our, you know, uh, swing thoughts devotees, and uh, he's become a really good friend of mine, Grant McDougall. Um, I let him know what had happened to me. And he sort of sent me back a note. He said, well, you're in my world now because he works for a big drug company. And he said, you know, Howard, a lot of people can lean into the side effects of these drugs, but they're, you know, they rarely affect people adversely. They do, but he said, you know, sometimes people, and he made a great point. It can be psychosomatic. If you think about, you read too many of the sort of side effects, then you start to become, you know, sort of, you know, now you feel like you've got those symptoms. But I will tell you for the most part with me, I've been on them for, um, I guess it'll be two weeks this Saturday. It just makes me feel a little bit tired because what it's doing is, is, as you said, it's bringing your blood pressure down and it's keeping my heart rhythm more regular. Mm-hmm. And I'm on another drug. So that's kind of what I'm hoping on Friday is that, you know, the doctor will tell me I don't need to be on this second drug. I can't remember what it's, what it's called, but it, it, I was given it by the cardiologist after he'd seen my, my monitor for 24 hours. But, uh, you know, in typical GSL fashion, I just golfed through it. I'm like, okay. I just sort of assessed my, I felt pretty good. And I thought, well, I didn't walk anymore. I rode with the caddy. And uh, I got a couple of times because my tees were f- way further back. Right. And, and there were, you know, I was not quite like a blue flag. But I said, you know what, just, just drive me there. No one's going to care. Just drive me to that tee box. But uh, all in all, like I said, I was happy that I was, uh, I'm home now and, you know, I still wish I was there, but I'm glad I'm not, uh, you know, wasn't worse. And like I said, well, you know, you, you say Mexican hospital, hospital to people and, you know, they get this idea that, oh, yeah. you know, there's some lady making a, you know, making epinadas over a giant drum and dirt floors and such, but it wasn't. Uh, I'll tell you one last story they're going to wrap up. There was a young woman. Because I was getting, I wouldn't say frustrated, I was getting nervous. When I was in the hospital, they were bringing me all these forms to sign. My insurance company, 
And you humble and Fred people know the chamber plan couldn't have been better. I had 180 days of amazing health care. They contacted the hospital. I never had to see a bill. But at one point, someone came from administration and had wanted me to give them my credit card. And I said, no, 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 I've already, it's already been taken care of. And I didn't have any of those words that I just said in Spanish. I said, would you please, is it possible to find me somebody that can speak a little bit more English? Well, this girl who was about my daughter's age, about 24, 25, her name is Melissa. So she came down from some office. No, she wasn't part of the nursing squad. And uh, her name was Melissa, I said. And she visited me and, and walked me through all this stuff and assured me everything was fine. She must have visited me five times in 24 hours. Wow. You know, every time I'd see her, I'm like, Melissa. And she's like, is everything okay? Can I explain anything to you? I'm telling you, these are some of the nicest people. If you're listening, if you've never been to Mexico, I'm going to tell you, I've been going there since 1986. And these are some of the nicest people, kindest people, you know, and this kid had no business coming to see me that many times. But she did. But she did. And uh, I was so happy. That's what I'm saying. That's why I wanted to lean into the gratitude of it all, because it would be easy to lean into the opposite of whatever that is. And maybe, you know, the last word to you about how that has helped how that helps golfers to be grateful to be out there. You one of the first lessons you ever taught me, you know, maybe try being less of an asshole. I mean, I'm summarizing, but <laughs> you know, I think that's what you said. Maybe try and be a good partner, be more grateful to be it. out yeah, there. Yeah. Be a good partner. And that, to me, that's part of being, I'm paraphrasing. But, but yeah. 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 But the, you know, yeah, I think that's part of the thing. I, I had a stretch of golf this year in the summer where like every round pretty well was in, you know, like 76, 77. And, but I remember playing a bunch of those rounds alone. I, I, Greg Pacheni at Blue Springs was kind enough to let me go off in a cart alone before the official tee times. And I remember a bunch of times on a glorious summer morning, the sun is slanting in and, you know, the sprinklers are going and all that. And just standing there going, this is amazing. This is amazing. Look at this place. And I would take pictures. And I, I'm i 100% convinced that is a key reason I was playing at a, at a pretty nice level. I was not in my head thinking about this and that. And and, and even some other rounds I played with, like, it was mostly about the engagement and being outside and just being able to do this thing that we love. And I think that is, when we're in that space, it's amazing how much more fun we have, but the the bonus is the is that you play better golf. Mm-hmm. I mean, rather than the worrying, the trying, and the all of that stuff, isn't it? Well, that, that's uh, so well said. And thanks for uh, listening. I know this is an, un- an unusual uh, episode of Swing Thoughts. We actually uh, maybe quickly before we go because there's a guy we've been trying to get on. You've been trying, and you've been so good about me having to cancel or switch episodes because you know near-death experience but uh who is this guy we're finally gonna are we gonna get him on before the end of the year i'm pretty sure uh he he's a coach in scotland so like here the weather ain't great <laughs> his uh schedule as they would say over there not too full his name his name is kendall mcwade really great guy he's about our age uh you know and he's from scotland so he'll be a treat to listen to and he's a, he's got an amazing story, not unlike Mike Hebron. And then here was a guy who was fully immersed in teaching the mechanics of the game, making sure you hit this position, do this right, do that right. And he'll tell the story, but there's no, this isn't giving anything away. He finally came to this realization that he wasn't helping out anybody, that all this detailed how do this instruction was in fact hurting people. And he went to Fred Shoemaker and he made a complete 180. And he now teaches, I think the, the tagline he uses something like uh, calls it instinctive golf. Mm, I so love he's that. got an amazing story. And uh, I think that it'll be, it'll be a fascinating uh time we have with kendall plus again i always just love talking to scottish people (laughs) i know (laughs) Uh, it's funny well listen man thanks for your time today and everyone else appreciate your uh i know a lot of humble and fred people listen to this 
And uh, it was pretty sweet and overwhelming. A bunch of uh, people sending me notes. Glad that I came home okay. I will say one thing, though. Uh, I mentioned how tough these greens were. And uh, one of the rounds, I hit like 12 or 13 greens, and I three-putted five times. After the beta blockers, I never three-putted more than one time. So maybe... So Matt there, O'Grady was Maybe there is something to it. Uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca is how you get a hold of this fine gentleman. Uh, Tim O'Connor, look for blogs, coaching, opportunities, quiet mind golf. I know you and Nate are planning some stuff this winter, so uh, all the information is there. And, of course, Humble and Fred Radio, the podcast, uh, fiercely independent for 11 years now. Thanks to Taylor May Golf and everyone else. See you next week. Competition in other places.